Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. What I want to talk about today is the secular Christmas, the fake Christmas, the commercial Christmas that we're all living through right now. And what I want to say is I think that the church should do what it always does with secular things, Christianize them. Let me explain what I mean. So I want to share some of my favorite secular Christmas songs, my favorite secular Christmas traditions, and my favorite secular Christmas movies, which I realize will be very triggering for some because this is a time of great debate in the church, this time of year, I mean, when people argue, Advent, no, uh, let's have Christmas fun, no, let's have Advent. And I absolutely am very firmly in the let's have Advent camp. So you may wonder, why am I going to talk in praise of secular Christmas things? Well, you'll just have to find out. So celebrations of the Lord's nativity took various shapes over the ages, but the celebrations that we have today are very affected by, very shaped by the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, where suddenly you had tension between two groups of people. Some were very religious, but they didn't like Catholic things, and some considered themselves very enlightened and didn't any longer like Christian things. And that meant that Christmas had to hide itself a little bit, a lot, actually. On the one hand, you didn't want to look too Catholic by celebrating Christmas in too Christmassy a way. On the other hand, you didn't want to look unsophisticated by celebrating angels and babies and these things that the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason had kind of kicked out the back door. So what happened was you started to see in the culture these sort of backdoor ways of celebrating Christmas. It's basically the same Christmas story that people wanted to continue to celebrate, but they realized they had to put different garb on it. They had to hide it a little bit. So this happened starting about 200 years ago. Uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas was written in 1822, uh, where Clement Moore had this story of this fable of old St. Nick visiting your house with presents. And this became very suspiciously like the Christian story of somebody coming down from heaven to give people graces and gifts. Then you had Charles Dickens, who has been called the man who invented Christmas, publishing A Christmas Carol in 1843, which was about Ebenezer Scrooge's encounter with his past, his present, and his future, which is suspiciously like what we do in Advent, which is we go to confession to try to get rid of the sins of our past. We try to change our present state by prayer and fasting, and we look to our futures by almsgiving and personal reform. So you had these secular ways of doing what Catholics had been doing all along. And then, of course, it ballooned from there with a proliferation of fantastic stories uh, from Rudolph to Frosty the Snowman to Elf, right? And a proliferation of change-your-heart stories from It's a Wonderful Life to The Grinch Who Stole Christmas to Hallmark Christmas movies, which are 
change your life movies, much like A Christmas Carol, in theme at any rate. What the stories don't speak a lot about, he does come up every once in a while, but they don't often center on Jesus Christ being born into the world to save sinners. And that's not okay. I'd much rather he showed up in them, but I kind of understand why he doesn't. Now, I love this passage of uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who is the cardinal who became Pope Benedict XVI, that uh, my friend Rebecca Teddy pointed out to me years ago, and um, uh, it's kind of been my Christmas companion ever since. He wrote, Nowadays a theologian or a preacher is all but expected to heap more or less sarcastic criticism on our popular way of celebrating Christmas. Christmas, we are told, has been commercialized irredeemably and has degenerated into a senseless marketing frenzy. Its religiosity has become tacky. Well, he admitted that there's much in that criticism which is justified. But, he said, it also points to something deeper. He said, the way we celebrate Christmas in this secular, commercialized way puts a, quotes sentimental framework on Christmas because the human heart which is battered by secular skepticism and tired of being scorned for what it believes, it kind of builds a protecting shield around itself, he said, so that we can contemplate Christmas even while we're, quotes, reluctant to expose our hearts to the gaze of another. So think about what he's saying here. He's saying we desperately want to celebrate Christmas, but the way things have been set up it's not cool to do so. It's not sophisticated to do so. It's too Catholic to do so if you're some, from a particular tradition, and it's too religious to do so if you're from a, another tradition. So what do we do is we create Christmas sentimentality. We created secular Christmas. Um, so sentimental Christmas kind of does the same job for your soul that a power uh, transformer does for your house, right? You have this these currents of electricity coursing through uh, your region that would overwhelm your house, it would explode your house if it was just dropped directly into your house. So it goes through a transformer that takes it down a notch and then allows it into your house. And this is kind of what secular Christmas, what sentimental Christmas is doing with the Christmas ethos. It's too raw, it's too real, we can't handle it. Ratzinger is basically saying that we speak about Christmas with euphemisms for the same reason we talk about other important things like marital intimacy or death with euphemisms. We're too embarrassed to talk about them directly, but they're so important we have to talk about them anyway. This is kind of what secular Christmas, what sentimental Christmas does. So we find ways to say, I loved you, God, with decorations and songs and gifts, without really saying it. And again, I would much rather that we talk to Christmas about Jesus Christ himself, and I do so with my family. I'm just trying to say that I like some of what the secular Christmas does when understood in this particular way. I love what Ratzinger says about gift giving, for instance. He says, uh, does our gift giving, quotes, not originate in the inner urgency of love with its compulsion to share, to give of oneself to the other? And does not the notion of giving transport us directly into the core of the mystery that is Christmas? 
So he says, Christmas gifts are a great thing, but only because they point to, quotes, the one genuine Christmas gift to mankind, to history, to each of us, none other than Jesus Christ himself, end quote. So he's saying that giving gifts at Christmas is a cool thing, whether it's a Christmas gift that's handed to your children on Epiphany to associate it with the wise men, or whether it's a secret Santa gift given to your coworker uh, and associated with so-called secular or sentimental Christmas. And I love the last thing he said there about us receiving the gift of Christ at Christmas because it underlines something I have always believed, and that's that the true meaning of Christmas is receiving gifts. Okay, I know giving gifts is wonderful, it's better to give than to receive, and almsgiving is truly necessary for your soul. I also agree that spoiled, rotten Christmas brat kids who whine about what they get and it's never enough are like a demonic mockery of Christmas. I'm not in favor of that. But the grateful reception of gifts is also a very beautiful thing. When someone asks you how your Christmas went, you tend to talk about things you received rather than things you gave. And I tend to think our instincts and the way we naturally talk about things is usually right. Even in the Bible, Christmas is a time for receiving gifts. The shepherds received the good news from the angels. Mary and Joseph received a baby. Even baby Jesus, of course, got gold, frankincense, and myrrh on Epiphany. But above all, the world got a Savior. So this is Advent when we imitate the virtues, especially of the prophets and John the Baptist, and especially of Mary and Joseph, especially Mary. And what gifts, what virtues most mark the prophets and most mark Mary? Well, the prophets' major message was we need to receive God's salvation. And Mary's major virtue is receptivity. Literally, receiving gifts is the major Marian virtue that we should be learning in Advent. So this is what I tell my children. Yes, Christmas is about receiving gifts. And I think that my children and most children have the same attitude toward receiving gifts that I had when I was a kid, which is just this sheer, grateful, intense, I can't believe this is happening, wonder at Christmas morning at the overflowing of gifts. This happens in years when we had abundant of gifts. This also happened in years when we didn't have a lot of money for gifts and you were grateful to receive just anything. So I think that the secular Christmas, in its emphasis on gift giving, actually does tell us something about God. Grace is like Christmas, extravagant, unmerited, unending gifts poured out on us for no other reason but that God is God and we are not. So I love Christmas gift giving. I think that's awesome. I also think Christmas decorations are awesome. And I like how Cardinal Ratzinger's words kind of give a uh, holy justification to Christmas decorations. So this is an argument that I have in my own household. It's not an argument. It's kind of an old discussion where I'm all for putting Christmas decorations up as early as possible. My wife is all for waiting for Christmas decorations as late as possible. She's all about let's wait till baby Jesus is born to celebrate him. I'm all about let's start celebrating the fact that he's coming. Uh, so our kind of um, 
compromise position is that we put them up on Gaudete Sunday. So that's the third Sunday where the priest wears rose and the pink candle is lit on the Advent wreath. But I've noticed she's starting to put Christmas decorations up earlier and earlier. So maybe she has a little bit of the Ratzinger spirit. Because I think, and I want to say this carefully because I don't want to say it the wrong way, Advent simplicity and sobriety is a good thing. It's something I aspire to. I wish I had more of it. I wish I had a heart that was capable of more of it. And I think it's true that less can be more. But sometimes I think more is more also. Um, Christmas decorations kind of vindicate a guy's aesthetic sensibility. All the rest of the year, there's a hard line of demarcation between what guys think looks cool and what women think looks classy. The two standards hardly ever merge. Guys prefer shiny, flashy things. You can look in a sports bar and see neon signs and shiny, flashy things. You can look at a professional sports show and the little bumpers that they have between, you know, there's robots who are lit up and and moving in strange ways. This is what guys like. This is what guys think is cool. This is how guys would decorate their homes if they were allowed to. Women prefer things that are more elegant, more understated, more tasteful. Baskets, cravats, doilies, right? I said cravats, and I literally don't know what a cravat is, but I know it's a thing, right? Is it decor? Yeah. They like things that are stately or pretty or charming. But at Christmas, there's this sudden explosion of cool things that women somehow think are okay. It's like a, a guy's winter wonderland. Suddenly, you can put up strings of lights, and that's okay. You put up gold spheres, you know, rings of fake evergreen with bright plastic berry, red berries on them, tinsel, fake icicles, snow globes that make funny little noises if you twist them, right? I even like snow globes that are in your lawn, but my wife won't go there. So yeah, suddenly we have overdressed porcelain angels sitting on our mantle at home. And I personally have giant plastic advent candles on my yard right now. Uh, so I love that Christmas does this. Christmas allows the guy's sensibility and the woman's sensibility to finally overlap. And again, I think this is a God-ordained situation. Hear me out. I, I think this is a true thing. God ordained that the vast night sky should unite all the nations under one giant show of sparkling, twinkling, flashy, shiny lights. This is what you see when you look up in Kansas, and this is what you see when you look up in Switzerland. And all the way from Atchison, Kansas to Zurich, Switzerland, at Christmas time, we do our best to kind of twinkle and shine back at God and give him the same view he's been giving us. So what do you do about secular Christmas music during Advent? I made the point in, I think, a previous podcast that you know, we're lucky that during Lent, when you're walking through CVS, you don't hear uh, Jesus Christ is risen today, alleluia, right? But when you're trying to stay in the Lenten spirit. But in Advent, you absolutely hear proclamations of Jesus's birth. You hear religious Christmas music sometimes in the grocery store and in the drugstore. Well, first of all, let me be on the record saying that I love Christian, Catholic, Christmas music. I love 
music which is classical and specifically about Jesus Christ. Benedictine College has this Lessons and Carols event that it puts on every year, and it's literally one of the my top three events that we do every year. I am find myself just awed to breathlessness by these Latin and German hymns that I can't even understand, but they're just so beautiful. Uh, it fills your soul. O magnum mysterium, stops my heart with its beauty. But I also have to admit that Johnny Mathis singing of the five and ten glistening once again, and Andy Williams predicting much mistletoeing, stops my heart with its beauty also. So I don't know what that says about me. I love the way real Christmas songs afford great opportunities for dad jokes. Okay. So in Angels We Have Heard on High, at one point, the song asks shepherds, why this jubilee? Why this joyous strain prolong? Which I think is just a hilariously odd thing to ask anybody. (laughs) So I will often ask my children while they're singing Christmas songs, why this jubilee? Why this joyous strain prolong? Which is, again, something that I find hilarious and that nobody around me does. But then there's this, this is a dad joke that I think other dads uh, have, um, have discovered I thought I invented it until I found other dads who had invented it also. But when you sing the first Noel, you say over and over again, Noel, 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 right? So then if you're a dad, you follow the instructions and you sing, born is the king of Israel, and you leave off the L, right? Because you said Noel. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's always hilarious uh, to at least you, right? Not necessarily to anybody else. Um, But one thing I will never do is sing either Angels We Have Heard on High or the First Noel or play them in my house during Advent. So I have a very strict rule where I will not play any song about the birth of Jesus Christ before his birthday in my house. I also don't let people sing happy birthday to people when it's not their birthday. I mean, that's not as big of a problem. But what I I discovered this principle from my brother, who's a pianist, and he's also a devout Catholic, and he's often called upon to play the piano at parties, and he's asked to sing Christmas songs. And he's very willing to play Jingle Bells during Advent, or Winter Wonderland during Advent, or Let It Snow during Advent. He's happy to play any number of songs about not Jesus, but Christmas time, uh, but he won't play actual Christmas songs. So what I've done is I've got on my uh, iPhone a Advent Christmas playlist, and just a few of the songs, you know, I'll Be Home for Christmas, I, I think that's perfectly fine to sing during Advent, White Christmas, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas is perfectly fine to dr- sing during Advent. I'll Have a Blue Christmas Without You is a perfectly fine Advent sentiment. It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas is literally an Advent song, right? Uh, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year? Sure, I'll go with that. Uh, What If God Was One of Us? I love that old Joan Osborne song. It kind of has a Christmas, at least thematically it's Christmassy. It doesn't sound very Christmassy, but that's on my playlist. Santa Claus is Coming to Town is on my playlist. In Like a Lion, Always Winter by Reliant K. So Reliant K is an old kind of Christianish group, um, but they have this song that was inspired by C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where they sing about how it's always winter but never Christmas. 
a perfect metaphor for Advent when we're waiting through Christlessness for the Messiah to come. They also have one on there called I Hate Christmas Parties, which is actually kind of a heartbroken love song, uh, but it fits very very well with this Catholic sentiment that I hate celebrating somebody's birthday when it's not when he's not born yet. Um, there's a little bit of a discussion in my house whether songs from the movie Frozen should be on our Advent Christmas playlist. Uh, Let It Go has some vaguely Adventish lines, um, but not really, but it's on there, I think. Uh, Do You Want to Build a Snowman is on there, too. Anything about snow, I think, what we're talking about in, in, in our Advent Christmas playlist. So Christmas songs, as long as they're not about Jesus Christ, are fine during Advent in my house. Um, one other thing we do during Advent is we watch Christmas movies. Now, I consider doing the whole podcast just about Christmas movies, uh, but uh, I thought it would be better to just kind of go through them very briefly. Uh, my wife is a huge Hallmark Christmas movie fan. I am less so, uh, but she sometimes will gather everybody together and will watch them. We have watched Christmas in the Smokies, for instance, which is about a country music star who comes back to a small town and to help save a berry farm, and there's some tension between him and an old flame. Some of these might not even be Hallmark movies, but they're Hallmark-ish movies. There was um, Merry Kissmas, which is, instead of a small-town rural community, it was in a uh, big city, and it's instead of people working on a berry farm, it's a stage director and choreographer at a you know at a place that puts on musicals and whatnot. You know, the one thing these all have in common is that they have these very picturesque Christmassy nighttime twilight scenes. Uh, there's Pete's Christmas, which is a fun movie. We watched that one a couple times. It's about a sub- so we went from rural to city. This is a suburban one. This kid, it's kind of a Groundhog Day Christmas story where he has a terrible Christmas and falls asleep at the end of the day and wakes up and it's that same Christmas over again. And through trial and error, he has to learn what Ebenezer Scrooge learned, which is that you have to change your life in order to be at peace and to have happiness with those around you. You know, one thing that I think Christmas movies have in common and what I think sentimental Christmas is aiming at is that we have this need for our lost innocence. We want to recapture our lost innocence. We long to go back to a time before we sinned. In our personal lives, uh, the sins of our childhood, those committed against us and those committed by us, kind of shape our character in very specific ways, sometimes very kind of twisted ways. Always, I think, there are ways that they have shaped us that grace can straighten out and grace can actually use what they've done uh, for the better. But these sins that we experienced in our childhood, both against us and then in imitation of those, possibly by us, this is why you always read, um, you know, Freud was all about childhood sins and what happened to you in your childhood. But even Augustine was about what ha- you know he did as a child he stole pears wasn't it and i think each of us can think back i remember w- stealing grapes from a neighbor and it became this big um, drama 
in my childhood brain. And then, of course, some people have uh, suffered much worse sins and much more traumatic things that have shaped their lives. Uh, and even those can be taken up by God's grace. Even those, God can find some way to help shape your character in a positive way. I think these Christmas movies are us longing to find that original innocence or that early innocence that we had once again. That's why even movies like Elf with Will Ferrell, with Buddy, who's this kind of innocent character who's kind of discovering New York and discovering the adult world is kind of a metaphor for what we're dealing with when we're dealing with Christmas. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas is about this gnarled, twisted, isolated figure who's like Elsa up on the mountaintop, and uh, he decides in his twisted way to steal Christmas from the townspeople below. And it's his first encounter with Cindy Lou Who that first starts to melt his heart a little bit. He tries to make up a story for her about what he's doing with Christmas. He says he's going to fix it and return it. But you can see he's already starting to feel the need to justify himself to the innocent. And by the end, his heart grows three sizes, and he joins along with the Who's down in Whoville. And of course, the greatest Advent movies of all are all about discovering innocence. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. It's the only movie my wife and I can't help but cry at each year, uh, which is also another significant spiritual principle. The things that cause you to cry are significant things in your life. They are, they're saying something about where your heart is. You know, Jesus wept twice in the Gospels, once over Jerusalem because they've rejected him and rejected the prophets, once over the loss of Lazarus, his friend, to death, and death is the result of disobedience. So what was important to Jesus's heart, this, what, what hurt him, what wounded him the most was our disobedience and our rejection of him. Uh, so what you find causes you to cry is probably showing you something significant in your life. And It's a Wonderful Life is all about the sacrifices that these people make for family in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And that is telling us something that, that we need to restore in our own lives. And then, of course, there's A Christmas Carol, which I dearly love. My family doesn't dearly love it, but I dearly love it, and I uh, force them to watch it. Uh, the younger kids, we watch the Muppets version. The older kids, we watch the 1984 George C. Scott uh, version. But uh, you know, it, it's one of these stories where people are discovering who they really are is who their family made them to be or who they could have been in Ebenezer Scrooge's case if he had embraced his family. And he only finds who he is in the end by entering into another family, Bob Cratchit's family, where Tiny Tim says, God bless us, everyone. So I don't know. Yes, Secular Christmas is not the greatest. Yes, I think that it would be best if we could each kind of dis rediscover the simplicity and sobriety of a very kind of pared-down Advent. And no, I don't think that's possible for many of us. So I think the best strategy is to, you know, they say that when there's waves washing over you, you can either get washed over or you can surf the wave. So I'm, my method that I'm recommending here is surfing the wave. 
Again, though, I, I had this uh, piece up on the Xcordy website about things you can do that are easy during Advent. I think it's great at the end of the day to gather everybody around the crash and say at least a decade of the rosary. It's a beautiful time to do it. Kids will remember it for the rest of their lives, looking at the at the baby Jesus there with the lights and candles and uh, a very evocative time to say a decade or five decades. So what, one thing we try to do is we always try to pray for those without gifts. And I think, first of all, I want to pray that those people without gifts get gifts. But also, I want my children to recognize when we're praying for this that there are people who aren't getting gifts like they will, and also that Christmas isn't all about just the gifts that they get. Uh, It's a great way to kind of refocus their minds to realize just how grateful they should be. So go ahead, decorate your house, but then say the rosary in your house. Go ahead, enjoy the... Christmas music that's not really about Christmas as you drive through the decorations in your town that aren't necessarily about Jesus. But remember that Jesus Christ is the center of the season, and one excellent way to do that is on your trip to run a Christmas errand. You know, there might be a long line in the store anyway that's going to delay you. Why not delay yourself just a little bit extra and go over to the church stop and kneel in front of the tabernacle or the monstrance if your parish is so blessed and thank Jesus for filling the world so much with this desire that we have for him that he's made even those who refuse to acknowledge Christmas acknowledge it over and over again in almost everything they do at this time of the year. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops and this is the Catholic Living Podcast by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.